0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on Earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
2: Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. This is Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021, and we've got some great guests. Um, I think we're going to start by having them introduce themselves we're going to talk a little bit about Jack Kerouac and, and working class clubs and uh, drinking beer. So let's start with Gerard. Just everyone go around say your name and, uh, you know, how we know you. Uh,
3: hey there. My name is Gerard Fagerberg. Uh, I'm a freelance beer writer, uh, most often for uh, good beer hunting and the takeout. Um, and I'm here today to talk about a story that I published in June about uh, Jack Kerouac and craft beer culture.
4: All right. Pete? Yeah, I'm Pete Brown. Uh, I'm a beer writer from uh, England, and I, that's where I am just now in London. Uh, I first met you guys when I was over in New York researching a book about the ingredients of beer. Uh, and at the moment, I'm writing a book about working men's clubs uh, in Britain and the unique institution that, that they are. Great. B.R.?
5: Uh, B.R. uh formerly of Shelton Brothers Importers, and uh, now just doing general beer things.
2: And one of our top guests ever. And and a
5: frequent, frequent guest. Frequent guest. Happy to be here.
6: And PJ? Had to follow up with that. Um, I'm PJ Mercier from Navigation Brewing Company in Lowell, Massachusetts. Owner, operator, and everything above.
2: All right. And home of uh, Jack Kerouac. So let's start. Gerard, so um, when I saw your article, tell us why you wrote about Jack Kerouac for, for Good Beer Hunting. And, um, are, you know, is that a beer article?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, what's funny is I, I was thinking about this. I don't think there's anywhere else that would have run that article because of how literature focused it was. Actually, my first draft was basically uh, like a biography almost. So, yeah, um, I, I grew up in Massachusetts. I'm from the South Shore, and uh, my brother actually lives in Lowell now. He's a, a frequent patron of Navigation Brewing, but I started reading Ker- Kerouac um, in college, and I loved it. I was, uh, you know, really entranced by it. There's a story I tell in the article about how it first came to me. It was introduced by a friend, um, and I kind of put it away for a while. But now I have a, um, a 16-month-old daughter, and you know, one morning we were sitting in, by the bookshelf, and she pulled a book off the shelf, uh-huh. and uh, it was a Kerouac book, a Satori in Paris, and one of his books I had never read. And I, I was like, oh, you know what? That's a good idea. Maybe I'll read this book. And I read it. And in the book, he's just like this drunken buffoon idiot it is like such a humbling moment for me. So it really thrust me back into reconsidering Kerouac and like my own history with alcohol. I come from an alcoholic Massachusetts family, so it's all kind of tied in there. And I thankfully had a very kind editor, Claire Bullen, who was happy to take me on the journey to make it a beer story.
2: All right. And then uh, so you were connected with PJ. So he, he was one of the guests you wanted to bring on um why did you want to talk to pj about about this show tonight
3: well pj was one of the first few i reached out to for the article because navigation is one of a, a few craft breweries that are actually in wool and um you know like i said my brother lives in wool i've been to navigation a few times um also merrimack uh, artisan ale is another company that's it's close by and i thought why not start with the place that kerouac was from and to look at how his um influence reverberates today and really how that enmeshes with the craft beer scene. So um, I did talk to PJ for the story. I don't think he made it in as a quote, but um, he he had one of his beer tenders, Dan Iverson, Um, talked to me uh, and it was, I think, the thing that really made the piece solidify, you know, getting that perspective of what it's like to be working in the beer industry and to be a fan, you know, really a devotee of Jack Kerouac and to have to confront this idea of like, how destructive the alcoholism is and how do we celebrate this and how do we do it responsibly and how does it fit with the way that craft beer is supposed to be consumed?
2: Yeah, and PJ, just give us a little intro. Tell us about Navigation Brewery Um, and and where is Lowell Mass? I mean, there's this myth and a part of this show is about myth and there's this myth of Kerouac and you always hear he's from Lowell, but where is
6: Lowell? (laughs) <laughs> so uh lowell, lowell massachusetts is about 35 minutes west northwest of uh boston uh we're right on the new hampshire border um where uh i don't know about a city of about a hundred and i think there's a little over a hundred thousand um it's and it's actually the fourth largest city in massachusetts and also the beginning of the industrial revolution um, um and navigation is just uh a small, a small pot of that. We're a small craft brewery. Uh, we're, we're a uh, 7 barrel brew house. So we, we're constantly uh, brewing new beers and uh, just more of a neighborhood type place uh, for the community to come in and hang out.
3: Yeah, what well, I love about Navigation is where you are too. You're in those uh, artist lofts too. So you're among all these artist studios just in the bottom floor of that.
6: Yeah, we're housed in a place called Western Avenue Studios and it there is a uh, 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 oh seventeen loft studios that live on site. I think the seventeen or twenty in that range. But there's 250 artist studios in the ba- in the building that we're in. Uh, so it was an old mill that was um, an old Joan Fabric Company uh, mill that was refurbished into art studios.
5: Yeah,
2: and B you know you're you're pretty well read and well traveled. We've talked a lot about working I'm beers. i so well like,
5: well read that I've got and, my <laughs> book with me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I recognize that
3: name on the cover.
2: Yeah. Um, anything to say about Jack Kerouac or, or uh, some some of the beers of Belgium that you know that working people might have been drinking?
5: Well, I mean for Jack Kerouac, I it's been I, I read the the good beer hunting article and I realized like it's been years, probably since college since I've actually read any Kerouac and need to revisit that now. But um but certainly I mean many beers uh were working class beers. I mean you look at like the grisette of of Belgium, um, the saison, the the Beer de garde of of Belgium and France, you know, specifically brewed for for workers as opposed to Um, you know, just as a a social drink, but, you know, evolved to a social drink as well. Um, But I mean, there's definitely, you know, there's always the myth of the farmhand, but, you know, it is based in reality of a lot of these beers, lower ABV, because, you know, you couldn't drink the water sort of thing. Um, But don't really have the connection between the European beers and Kerouac, except the fact that I believe he came from, his family's from France, I think, originally. Quebec. Oh, Quebec, okay.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, then and let's maybe just, France just
5: get,
2: that. Yeah, maybe France, yeah, right? Most likely, yeah. Um, and let's let's go to Pete because we're trying to tie this in. I think the the overall theme for me is like myths of working class people, and and uh, y- you're onto a book that is starting to make a lot of sense to me.
4: Yeah, so I I I think work working class in the UK means something different than it does in the states. Uh, I think a lot of people in the States who would describe themselves as middle class uh, would be, would, would describe themselves as working class in the UK. Uh, just after Brexit happened, about 60% of the UK population described themselves as working class, even though you would look at their circumstances, their jobs, and a lot of them you'd say, well, they're middle class. Uh, and obviously Britain is, in, is obsessed still by the kind of whole class system which which we invented. Uh, and, and I come from a very working class, blue collar Area uh, in the north of England, uh, a place called Barnsley, which was uh, the absolute heart of coal mining, uh, and uh, in communities like that, uh, hard drinking was uh, the, the the rule of the day. Really, uh, partly it was uh, necessary. Uh, I've just been I've just found this great passage about a club in Barnsley where the barman was pouring pints at ten to twelve and put hundred pints out on the bar. Uh, and this guy sitting there thinks, "This guy's lost his mind." <laughs> uh, and then at twelve o'clock, a hundred miners come in uh, and with with black faces uh, from the soot and the and the dirt, and they each just kind of sink this pint in about four or five seconds uh, to clear their throats of the dust and the coal. Uh, and then they all leave again, and about two or three of them stay for a second pint, um, and, and and so this was part of my upbringing. Uh, it's a it's a scene which has all but disappeared now. All the coal mines are closed. Uh, there was also kind of mill towns in the north, uh, steel towns, um, and and they're all gone as well. Uh, and I know that you've got similar uh, areas in in the states that were kind of these big industrial areas, these big big blue collar areas, and and the clubs were were formed mainly by working men. Um, spaces that were they were originally intended to be kind of self-improving and they were meant to be uh uh temperance places that didn't have beer but without beer the working men wouldn't go to them so they eventually very quickly they they, they realized that they had to have beer to get these guys into to edu- educate them they said working men should be able to kind of rule these places themselves it should be democratic they should uh they should decide what goes but the people saying that wanted to impose a middle-class sensibility onto working men so uh when the working men did take over, uh, they they turned them into kind of places with cheap beer uh for relaxation. But it, it does it does pick up on a couple of the themes that we've already heard. Um clubs were seen as a, as a more responsible drinking environment than pubs were, uh, because they weren't driven by a commercial imperative. Um and it was very tied up with industrial revolution, uh, like like Lowell, you know, it's it's this place where these these places where it was about this kind of sudden shock of moving from the land and moving from rural agricultural work to being kind of chained to these big machines. And, uh, and and that was a huge trauma uh, in terms of working class leisure time and, and how people coped with that. So it's a, it's a sprawling, epic history of, uh, of of working people in, in the UK.
2: Yeah. Hey Gerard, in in your article um, that, that brings us to Kerouac because you said that before, he was famous, he was drinking beer and, and he would have a beer glow. And then once he was famous, he was a whiskey drunk.
3: Well, that that insight comes from uh, Jerry Nicoja who's one of Kerouac's biographers. And I think he talks a lot about um, Kerouac's relationship with alcohol. I mean, his, Kerouac's father was an alcohol uh, alcoholic and so he was always drinking, but early in his life, he was drinking a lot of beer and a lot of wine. Um, Actually, uh, uh, Jerry shared me this great picture of Kerouac and, and one of his friends in New York City after a softball game, and they're drinking ice cold cans of Ballantine beer, because like for him, that was like ultimate relaxation, right? This is, we're just going to have a couple beers and relax. But as he became more famous, people were forcing alcohol on him. They'd see him out, they'd buy him drinks. And that is, you know, according to uh, Jerry Nacojo, kind of what started his his downfall, but I do also think it's the trajectory of most alcoholics, right? You, you sort of start with beer and then, you know, you can't quite scratch that same itch and you end up, you know, drinking whiskey at nine o'clock in the morning until you're, you're, you know, doubling over and going to hospital. And, you know, Jerry told me that by the end of his life, uh, Kerouac was only drinking beer as a chaser for whiskey. So that, that's kind of how the, his relationship changed over the course of his
2: life. Yeah. Uh, PJ, you want to say anything about like the myth of Kerouac and Lowell? Um, I, I always thought it was kind of romantic thinking about this working class kid going to an Ivy League school and uh, traveling the world as a poet. Um, I don't know. What what, what what do people go to Lowell looking for?
6: Well, I, I know a lot of people go and they visit, you know, they, they read his stuff. They're intrigued by it. So they go to visit uh, his gravesite's a big, a big one. Um, you know people always leaving bottles of whiskey out there um you know it, you'll see you can find pictures of that on the internet anywhere anywhere you want to look i mean we had is is no so my grandfather was a um, a political man in in law he was a um, you know, city councilor and he would always talk about Kerouac stories and it, essentially what we we kind of grew up you know what he knew him as was he was a drunk he would hang out in a, a bunch of the different bars. Um, he had, you know, he, he definitely, I mean, a lot of people have a hard time with alcohol. Um, he had a hard time with it and struggles like anybody else, I guess. Um, but the uh, that, that's all, you know, that's from the locals perspective. There's really not much other than, you know, it, it's just a guy from Lowell. Um, it, you know, we don't, we don't see... We don't see much of it. You see a lot of the people, the tourists will come in and, and really, um, and really soak it all up. Like Some of the places that he had been, was it the Worthen, I believe it was Jared. Uh, the, yeah. The Worthen. Um it, it, It'll take you back in time if you go in there too, but the, um, that, that's pretty much all, all you know, the, the folklore that we hear about it, you know, and that this guy got to travel the world and, he was just another guy from Lowell. <laughs> really, that's all it was for the Lowell people and, until he became famous. Then it was like, oh yeah, Jack Kerouac, Jack Kerouac.
3: Yeah, one of the things that's crazy about Kerouac is is he died. He died destitute, right? And, and he was he had you know, ninety dollars to his name, and now he's the only writer with every single one of their books currently in print. So so much of his fame came after the fact. Like when he was living in Lowell later in life with his mother he was a bum. That's all he was, you know, and he had alienated everyone in his life from him and everywhere he lived, whether it was New York or Florida or Massachusetts, people knew him as this like, you know, hunched over sack at the bar.
6: That's pretty, that's pretty wow, much that's it. Cool.
2: Yeah, man. Well, I don't know if i to talking about this anymore. <laughs> um, well, Pete, you know, you, you, let's go back to your book. Cause, uh, there's some redemption in, in these clubs that you were talking about, right? Because I, I do, I, I do feel that. Like, let's go back to what you said about the Industrial Revolution. Like when Br was talking about, you know, some of the low ABV beers of, of farm workers and history. You know, going to these industrial towns really was a big, big shift for for populations, right?
4: Yeah, and it's we think about the Industrial Revolution happening over a period of maybe two centuries. But there was a point in the early 19th century where basically a, a mass of people moved from agricultural work to urban factory and mill work in in the UK, uh, and it and it was a shock. It, and it, it took a while to for, for society and culture to to rebuild itself, to reorient itself. So when people working in fields, that very much that kind of that Belgian that that, that saison experience that that we, that we hear about. You know, it was like that in the uk uh, up to maybe you know around 1800 uh and th- and families worked together uh you worked really hard at harvest time and planting time and then when things when there was no work to do you kind of took it easy the the year was a a cycle um rather than a kind of linear progression of years uh and then in the factory you were part of a production line and you were yoked together uh the men were all in large groups of men uh women either kept the house or they worked in domestic service uh for the for the richer landowners in, in the big houses. Um and leisure time kind of disappeared. And and every single leisure pursuit that people tried to bring in from the countryside was was banned. Access to open space was banned. Slums were built over parks, that kind of thing. Uh, and there was nowhere else to go other than the pub uh and the music hall. That that was it. Um, and and so culture became more oriented around, around drinking, around going to the pub and drinking, and and it was demonised. Uh, you know, in, in the mid nineteenth century, we were kind of teetering on a sort of religious fundamentalist version of Christianity, um, where everything was bad, everything was wrong, um, everything was a sin, uh, and so drinking was a sin, uh, and, and all this kind of thing. But some pubs were pubs that, you know, the way we idealize the British pub, some pubs are kind of warm, welcome, nice and cheery, people sitting there by the fire, just, just having a couple of beers and passing the time. Other pubs turned into, into gin palaces. And again, you, you've got this kind of thing that we've already talked about, the the, the dichotomy between beer and spirits. Uh, and when people are drinking gin, they were drinking to self-destruct. They were drinking to blot out the horrible reality uh, of of industrial work. When people took in beer, a lot of the time they were just more mellow, just relaxing. It was a it was an aid to just socialising uh, and and chilling out. And what I'm finding as I read a lot of this stuff is that people just wanted to hang out. That, that's all they wanted to do. Uh, and a couple of beers made it easier to hang out uh and 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 more pleasant to hang out and and that's that's the thing that's why i'm a beer writer because i i still believe that um but when we got to it's a bit too simplistic to say it's black and white but spirits tended to be much more destructive uh and so you get those things fighting for supremacy through the through the 19th century
2: wow hey gerard uh i just i wanted to also interview you just personally because there's this. i just got to meet you through this article um just tell us about some of the beers that you like. Um, I mean, first of all that you're a good beer you know good beer hunting writer is is pretty cool. How did you start writing for them and and um do you do you write about other things besides beer? Uh,
3: I write mainly about beer. I mean the, my my journey to beer writing was really kind of a a silly one. you know I, I've always wanted to be a music writer and I was doing that for a little bit. you know uh, I was writing I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts before I moved here and I was writing for the dig, which was the, the all weekly. there still there actually. And moved out here and just, I moved into such a great beer culture at the time in 2014, it was really, really growing here in Minneapolis. And it was an area that not a lot of people had covered yet because of that fact. So I just kind of got into the business side of things and obviously I enjoyed beer. And and so I've, uh, I really enjoyed being kind of a part of that history and trying to document it in our local papers, it, it, what was uh, city pages and now is, is racket. And, um, yeah, I love uh, the creativity here. I'm doing a feature right now on a brewery called Junkyard, which is in Moorhead, it's, uh, which is right on the North Dakota border in northwest Minnesota. Really fun, fantastic beers. I'm drinking one from Lupulin in Big Lake right now, which is a, a uh, another kind of far off outpost. So I just like it feels a little bit more like a frontier here. So I, I love being part of that, and um, I'm lucky when I get to write about it for Good Beer Hunting. You know, I just had kind of gotten a hand from someone I know through Twitter, Kate Bernat, who is, uh, if anyone reads anything in craft beer, you should read her first. Um, And she said, go ahead and pitch this story. And there was another story before that I written about the evolution of prohibition in the United States and Minnesota, who has the most regressive beer laws, I would say in America. Um, And so I've enjoyed that. And sometimes I write about other wacky food stuff for the takeout, but that's kind of the meat and potatoes of it, you know, when you have a 16 month old daughter, you do a lot of that too. So,
2: Yeah. Well, you gave me a cool list of beers that you liked. it um, said six beers you enjoyed recently you said prize Eastlake by all means, lucky envelope, new realm. Um, yeah. yeah. Are those I, I, all from, from near you or where well, are those? East, East Lake
3: is probably the closest brewer to me, which is great. It's about four blocks away and they're uh, a little tiny, you know, uh, five five ish barrel brewery and uh, a global market near me. I think they're super underrated. So I definitely wanted to give them a shout out on the national stage. Uh, one of those beers was sent to me by Kate from Montana. It was fantastic. And then I have a, a coworker who's in Charlottesville, Virginia, who sent me two beers from New Realm. That was my first time ever having anything from New Realm. And man, they were fantastic. The Hellas was so crisp, clean. And then the other beer he sent me was like a black tea and lemonade uh, sour, which was like a, it's like an Arnold Palmer. Uh, it was, and so I knew Rome quickly elevated to being one of my favorite breweries in Virginia and the DMV for sure. So uh, yeah, I'm lucky that I get to taste a lot of beers from out of state, but I usually only drink Minnesota beer.
2: Oh man, Minnesota pride. Well, last year was, you know, all the news. Uh, the first time I really paid attention to Minneapolis and Minnesota, I, th- I think since, uh, who was the governor of Minnesota who was a former wrestler? Jesse Ventura. Yeah, that was, that was long before that my was, time. <laughs> that, was the, that was the first thing I knew about Minnesota. And then last year, I, I, I knew about um, that there was a pretty progressive city. Yeah, um, yeah,
3: I live about two blocks from George Floyd Square. So yeah, it's been a, a crazy year. But luckily, I got to vote today for a charter amendment that's hopefully going to bring a lot of positive social change in the city going
2: forward. Wow, Minneapolis! Isn't that where um? What what was the TV star from the '60s? Wasn't there a TV show based
3: yeah, there? Um, Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah, there's a statue of her in downtown. Yeah, you know, oh, like yeah. throwing the hat in the freeze frame. Yeah.
2: Wow, a lot going on there. Yeah. Hey, and um, so Pete, what do you make of all this?
4: Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by, by the Caravaggio thing, um, because you know, like everybody, I, I read him in college, and it was this kind of big opening up of the of the world really that 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 sense of wonder uh when you when you haven't really experienced much and and maybe it kind of gets tarnished in time. Um but it, but it strikes me as that um yeah I I, I I come from an alcoholic family as well. And um and and we when we when we work in beer we have this uh this pull towards towards both ends of the spectrum. Uh you know there is a joy in hedonism and in losing it and just abdicating your responsibility for anything. Um, and obviously that's fine in small doses, uh, but if it becomes your default, then you get into trouble. And I think a lot of people I know in the industry have or have had problems with with alcohol. Uh, and I have to be careful myself. You know, I I, I take a month off every January uh, just to make sure that I still can and, and that I, I I don't suffer any adverse effects. Uh, as soon as that becomes difficult, then I, then I have to... Think about doing something more serious but at the moment it's still fine uh and and it's it's that, that relationship to creativity and alcohol which we explore in a lot of writers a lot of people uh cite Hemingway as somebody as, as well who who had that glorious kind of drunken uh epiphany uh and actually Hemingway was a was not a fan of writing while drunk uh he would he would often write while he was he would often stay strictly sober while he was writing um because he felt that it couldn't it couldn't mix, uh, so I, I do think that the relationship with creativity and alcohol is a, is a fascinating one. So I'm I'm loving uh, learning more about Kerouac.
3: Yeah, it's interesting to say you know I that so much of the conversation I had with Haymarket uh, Brewing in, in Illinois um, in Michigan, sorry add, so much of that had to do with that relationship between, be, between creativity and alcohol. And I love the Hemingway. Uh, relation here because Hemingway and Kerouac could not have been more different but also mm. in a lot of ways it could not have been more the same right I think uh they're they're so diametrically opposed yet so united by this thing and as a writer and I'm sure you know this but you have to like constantly evaluate how what is your relationship with alcohol because of Absolutely. things that were fed in terms of like this is the thing that will help you open the door and that's something I had I contend with a lot in my life
4: yeah I, I did a controlled experiment when I was writing my craft book Um, I had writer's block and I spent a night with a bottle of whiskey uh, and I, as an experiment, I I drank a bottle of whiskey and carried on writing till till 4am. And uh, I normally when I do that, I can't read my writing the next day. So I was really careful to just spend more, 10 times more time correcting my my typing than I spent actually writing it. And at the time I was doing it, I was thinking, oh, this is amazing stuff. I'm really into some really deep shit here. And the next morning, I'd say there were two or three sentences that I would not have got to if I hadn't done that. Uh, I, I did reach out to something that I couldn't have done sober. But the rest of it was awful. <laughs> it was really bad. Uh, and so I think alcohol does give you that illusion of, of this oh my god man this is all this is incredible this is incredible uh and on on my experience i well let's just say i've not done it again yeah, i mostly yeah. just
3: want to go to sleep when i get drunk
4: so. <laughs> <laughs> well it's,
2: it's it's a rush of any creative thing you know where you're like whether it's a hit of, it used to be a cigarette sometimes or, or having that cup of coffee or an extra drink it pushes you through sometimes but you also can't do that every day um PJ, back to you with your beer, man. Um, well, first, I keep thinking about some things you mentioned in the article, Gerard, about this travel in Ulysses. And I was reading a wine article this week. Uh, the, and the, actually, in the restaurant, they were describing the, their wine list as like uh, Odysseus' journey or something. Um, so there are these like travel. So it's cool to talk about Minneapolis and London and and now back to Lowell. So let's pretend we're Kerouac bouncing around. PJ, tell us about some of the beers you make, man. And um, you know what what, what are we keeping you from? Because I know I know that you're you, you you got a brew pub. You have a tasting room. Tell us what it's like. Because I have a feeling we're going to come up and visit you in Lowell.
6: Oh, that 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 would be great. I'd love to have you. Um. So yeah, we're at like I said, we're a uh, seven barrel brew house. And we're constantly brewing new stuff. Um, we, we brew everything all over the board. I mean, my tap list right now is not like most tap list. Um, a lot of places you go, there's probably going to be about a dozen IPAs on, and then a couple other beers. Um, right now, we have a like we, we brew a Kolsch. That's actually what I was drinking earlier. Uh, we have an amber on on tap. Um, we have a we call something. We, it's actually a it's a brown ale with coffee. We used a coffee nibs in that one um you know we, we got a sour uh it, it, it literally tastes like a like a lemonade like a lemonade it is unbelievable um anyway yeah we brew everything we brew all over the board i think we're you know we i think we're well over 200 beers now different types of styles different types of beers that we've brewed um i mean you name the style we'll do it uh, we We kind of specialize in some German stuff, some of our darker stuff is really really good uh a lot of the porters a lot of stouts um and like everybody else, we do a lot of uh i p a s uh we prefer to do west coast i p a s um american pale ales you know it it, it really just what we try to do is we try to have something for everybody's palate uh so when they come in, they are always trying something new um but they're also we're trying to convert some people over. <laughs> I think most breweries are trying to do that. Um, and thankfully, um, lagers and uh, some of the other uh, pills is just starting to make a comeback, which is easy for us to um, obviously brew, but the, um, but it's also helped. It's helping converting people over from those. Uh, I just call <laughs> the 30 pack drinkers. Um, <laughs> I think we all know them, you know, <laughs> they could put down a, a 30 pack of Coors Light, but then you hand them a you know a seven percent IPA and you tell them, you know, that's a six pack and have at it. And I'm only going to pour you one more because they don't know how to handle it. Um, and
2: you're right, man, that there's still uh, the, the average person isn't the like the bulk of beer sales is still like kind of mainstream, like I guess you call it the 30 pack drinkers, right?
6: Yeah, yep, 30. yeah that's what we call them the, yeah uh, i think
3: i think it's so interesting minneapolis and Lowell are so similar both former textile milling towns coming through the city but also you have like that up-and-coming young class of folks like it changed so much since my childhood like when i was like a teenager it was like never go there and i go to visit my brother and it's like like a fun the up-and-coming town so how has like the beer taste changed in the time that you guys have been operating? Well, has it like become more like, I you don't know, educated if that's the word you want to use?
6: I was a little bit broken up there, but I think I got most of it. Um, yeah, so the, uh, we're trying to educate people, yeah, because we're not, you know, we're one of two breweries that are in the city. Um, so, and again, Lowell's a, a, a blue collar city. Uh, so you have a lot of working people who are going to the bars, um, I can I, I can imagine it's, it's very similar to what Pete described earlier. I don't think much has changed. Um maybe a few more nightclubs. Like the beer has gotten better. You know, we're probably not drinking common ales like they were back then. But the um uh yeah, the scene's the scene's good. I mean, it, it, you're trying to build a community or trying to introduce people to it. And like Pete kind of um elaborated you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tag on to that. It's about responsible drinking, going there, having a good time, just wanting to hang out. Um, you know, we're not, we're not looking, you know, we close early. We're close at 10 o'clock. We don't want that late night crowd coming in. I don't think most breweries or tap rooms want that anyway. I think, you know, we want to, um, we want to keep people coming back, but we don't want them to be relying on us, um, you know, to the point that we become the, you know the go-to bar. that We don't want we don't want to turn into dive bars. Um, so that's why we're constantly changing our beers all the time, uh, trying to keep everything fresh, keeping people coming. Uh, you'll have a lot of people that will follow on social media. Um, and we brewed today. We brewed a black one of our um, one of our our kind of our go-to's. We brewed a couple times a year. It's called the Black Pepper Porter, and. Um, you know that that's going to bring a whole different crowd of people who haven't had that beer in a while they're going to come back in and they're going to want to try that and well you know because they haven't had it in a while and then we'll um while we while we got them here we'll have them try some of the other stuff that they missed over the you know the few months or two months that um the the um the tap list has changed I, that answered your question jared i'm sorry
2: no it's good hey back to pete pete um Back to the work, the working clubs. Um, why did you start thinking about that book? I, I don't think I'd ever even heard of working clubs be, before you, you were talking about it recently.
4: Yeah, it's a funny one. Uh, it's part of my upbringing. Uh, it's I I've, I've just been writing a chapter about how w- when I was a kid, I well when I was not a kid, uh, after my first year at university, I went back home and got a job in a working men's club. A hundred yards from the house where I grew up, and uh, when they found out I was a student, they they fired me uh, <laughs> because I my my face didn't fit anymore, you know. Uh, and it's, it's part of a complex relationship. Me, me working out my relationship with being a working class person who's become a middle class writer. Uh, reject. I, I rejected my community that I grew up in, uh, and it rejected me. Uh, so, so that's part of it. I think the other side of it is that the working class is is always demonised. Um, they're always kind of considered to be kind of brutish, and these people just go out drinking, and they're, they're quite thuggish and that kind of stuff. And that's an unfair characterisation. Uh, I, I think uh, I think working class communities had a history of being really strong and cohesive, and there was a lot of goodness in in there, and and it's now being. Broken up, but but what I love it about is, is I mean, I wanted I wanted to write this book for about fifteen years. Um, when I wrote my first book, Man Walks into a pub. There was a there was a a, a licensing act in eighteen seventy two that uh, imposed lots of new closing restrictions on on pubs, um, but allowed gentle the gentlemen's clubs in the middle of London where the aristocracy drank. They were exempt from these restrictions. Uh, and then the guys running the working men's clubs went, okay, so these restrictions apply to pubs but not to clubs. It's like, well, yeah. So, well, we're clubs as well. So, <laughs> so we can stay open and drink as late as the aristocracy and the politicians can. And the aristocracy and the politicians went, shit, <laughs> we, we screwed this up. And I just love that example of the working men turning the hypocrisy of the establishment back on itself uh, and winning that battle. Uh, and, and and the upper classes have always tried to kind of improve the working classes uh, and and say, this is what you should be doing. This is what you should be reading. This is what you should be listening to. Uh, this is what you should be doing with your spare time. And and working class people have always turned that back around and said, yeah, well, this is the way we want to do it. Uh, and so it's really a story about that. And it, and it really is a very unique... Uh, other countries, I think Canada had some working men's clubs. I think Australia definitely did. But at its peak in the UK, something like... of the population belonged to a Working Men's Club. Um, It was an incredibly influential organisation. It wasn't just about cheap beer. uh, It was about self-actualisation. So you you could be working down a a mine or working in a mill, and then you could be secretary of a club, and you could be in charge of a budget that was bigger than the place where you worked on a machine. Uh, And a lot of people who became involved in the Working Men's Club movement, they became the first working class politicians, councillors, MPs, uh, all this kind of stuff. So it's a great emancipation of, of working class people as well. So there's a lot of different strands to it. And if if I'm jumping around, that's because the whole thing is in my head at the moment. There's so many different strands to it. Uh, and I'm trying, I'm trying to get it all into one coherent narrative, and it's proving a struggle.
2: No, you, you're the ace in the hole. I knew that you could talk this the whole hour <laughs> <laughs> and, none, and none of us would get bored. Uh, how about this? I, I think there are some clubs. In uh, like old America, like either PJ or Gerard, um, what about uh, in those old mill towns, aren't there things like Elks clubs or certain ethnic groups? Like I know in Boston, there's a Lithuanian citizens club. Um, do you Either one of you want to talk about those? Because I, I wonder if they're similar to what Pete's writing about.
6: Yeah, I can I can, get, I can elaborate on that, especially here at Lowell. We have, um, you know, because it's ethnic neighborhoods. So we have, you know, the Portuguese club, it's still, it's still the Portuguese club. There's, there's Elks. Um, I think you started getting into it with, um, you know, there was a Knights of Columbus as we turned, turned into, um, I'm trying to think mm-hmm. there was actually one here. It was almost like a speakeasy. You walked in, it was like a 1960s mafia movie. It was called the sack club and it was the social American club. And you would literally had to press a buzzer to get in, <laughs> walked in, it was in the, it was in like. Literally in the in the, the worst part of downtown, the acre, the poorest section of downtown, you would walk in, push this button, you walked in and you literally looked like you were walking into a, like a casino movie. It was just crazy. And there was politicians all around a huge bar and there was everybody who was anybody would be in this place. And it was um, all different times of day. It was just I remember taking friends down there and they were like, are you buzzing in? I'm like, yeah, don't worry. <laughs> but they would walk in and they'd be scared because they didn't know what to expect. Uh, they still have those clubs. Um, I think w- over time, I think they're starting to die out because that next generation is just—they're just not—they're just not, not passing on that generation. And then, hey, it is what it is. Everything's—I guess—dies in the end.
4: Um, but that, that's a huge part of it. Um, for for 150 years, if you were—you you, know—the the legal drinking age over here is 18 rather than 21. And for your 18th birthday, your dad would give you your club membership card, yeah, yeah. and that was it. You you were following the family line, and around the time that I turned 18, that kind of thing stopped. We we my generation and every generation since don't want to be like your parents. They, they don't want to continue. They, they want to do something different. They want to strike out, do their own thing, uh, and that's led to this massive decline in the clubs here. A lot of people in the UK think that clubs don't exist anymore because. It's like, well, they're old-fashioned. They belong to the 70s. They belong to my grandparents. Uh, so, yeah, that I'm that, that here as well.
2: Hey, 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 we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
2: Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Become a member and support us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, so we're talking with Pete and Gerard and PJ and BR about work and working people and Jack Kerouac. Um, Gerard, you were just saying something?
3: Yeah, the parallel I want to draw to these uh, clubs that both PJ and Pete are talking about is, and so, you know, I grew up in a union family. My Electrician. Every basically guy in my family since they came to the United States worked in the union shop. And uh, I reported a story years ago about tugboat drivers in Baltimore, in Baltimore, and it was about this idea of uh, the kind of like uh, drinking a raw egg and beer for breakfast. It it was a very interesting thing, but it was a lot about, you know, the relationship between beer and work and like the idea that this beer is a source of nutrition of value where, you know, kind of get together with all the people that work on the dock, work on the tugboat. You have a drink before you talk about everything. The work, you come back, that's where you go back at the end of the day. You get nutrition for your hard day's work from your beer. Sometimes you put an egg to fortify it. It's a different story. But I think that these clubs, to me, and that sort of kinship that you find in your in your union, your your uh, tradesmen, your fellow tradesmen who do the same thing, that becomes the definition of your life. If you look at areas of the United States on the East Coast, especially around, you know, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, you have these towns built around factories, and all the people, when the factory whistle blows, where do they go? They go out to the tavern, and they all get together, and these are like union halls, and that source of collectivity, and I think, Pete, you're absolutely right, that As you kind of go and the American dream is really to do better, your parents want you to do better than they did. And so people lose connection to their blue collar roots. You know, that was always my dad's line. Like he did, he wanted me to not have to work these on-call shifts and, you know, coming home with these injuries. And so I joined a, you know, at 14, a a non-union supermarket and he called me a scab, but I was, you know, 14 (laughs) years old. I didn't want to pay dues. I just, I wanted to be able to afford my car payment. So, uh, yeah, I think that that connection is definitely lost. And now you're at a point now where I think union membership is at an all-time low in the United States. Um, thankfully, it's making a comeback here in Minneapolis. We have the smallest union brewery in the country and Fair State Brewing Cooperative. So you're seeing a resurgence, but I think that, you know, maybe these things are cyclical. Maybe they come and go as our relationship to labour changes over time.
4: Wow, I, like- well, I, I hope so. I mean, w- w- when you look at the recent kind of toxic culture and the me too that craft beer has had this this year uh with all these dreadful allegations coming out um some of that is down to genuinely unpleasant individuals in the beer industry but a lot of it is down to just uh, people not really knowing how to run a workplace uh and people are getting kind of get uh, working ridiculous shifts uh and having to kind of do eight hour weeks and, and not get paid for it and this kind of thing a lot of just it's like just besides like join a union uh, and in the UK, on that side of things, I think for kind of people working craft breweries, people working uh, in in bottle shops and beer bars, just being some we'll join a union. A, a union is here to, to help you sort this kind of stuff out. And uh, and I I'm, I'm, betraying, <laughs> I'm betraying my my working class socialist roots here, uh, but, but yeah, I, I do think a, a, a rise in unions again is the answer.
2: You know, I, I did think last year with with all the the talk of like just what was going on in in breweries and and restaurants and other jobs. It it seems like that, that is the answer that HR is part of it, that a lot of businesses have grown so fast that, you know, you, you maybe you only knew how to manage as a mom and pop. And suddenly once you get to 15 or 20 employees, your relationship changes with your, with your employees. And, um, you know, that that's an interesting, we could have another, another conversation about that, about unions um, and uh, that could be very cool. I want to ask B.R., because uh, B.R., what's your take on this? Uh, any, is there a question you want to ask someone on the panel here? Because I, I always um, respect your opinion.
5: <laughs> well, no, I just think it's, it's rather interesting in terms of the clubs. I mean, even when you think of you know the start of Manhattan and New Amsterdam, where the original City Hall started as a tavern. It was initially a tavern. Um, and because they didn't want to entertain, the governor didn't want to entertain in his own home, but then it became a meeting place. And while it wasn't so much working class, it was more on the political level where, um, you know, people would come, politicians would come, uh, and it was people getting together. They were getting the news, what was happening. Um, and then I think that just kind of evolved in, in New York in particular, where you did have political clubs that would meet in, in taverns, um, depending on which party you were in, you went to different taverns. Um, and then eventually you see that in, you know, the Lower East Side when you, you, know, in the 1800s where tenement buildings, people had no place to go. They were, you know, living on top of each other in these tiny, tiny buildings in basements. And well, mostly just the men would go out though, because it didn't really have a living room or a place to socialize. They'd go to the bars and that's where they'd go there for lunch. They'd go there for dinner. They'd go there for drinks. Um, some of them, the gin palaces as Pete was referencing earlier, you know, as more of a place of oblivion, but there were plenty of bars. I mean, there were like thousands and thousands of bars, you know, lining the streets downtown, um, where people would just go and, and socialize for them, or the men would go and socialize for the most part, um, and made it into, you know, I think they also had it, where some, if you were working in, you know, textiles, if you were working, you know, and on the docks, each had their, each neighborhood, each, um, industry kind of had its own place to go. Um, so, in a similar sort of microcosm, New York is similar to the, you know, the working class that you see, you know, whether it's the mill towns, the factory towns, um, you know, all up, up the eastern seaboard and, and in England as well. But I found it, fa- I found it fascinating though, because I didn't know about that there were actual club clubs, but it, in in England, that seems like it also sort of a precursor to the unions. As would Pete, would there be a lot of union organizing within those working men's clubs?
4: Well, it was really interesting. I've been exploring that relationship um because a lot of what we see about how working class people got basic rights uh we, we see that played out in the workspace uh, and most cultural historians most most social historians talk about how we got rights at work and, and the working men's clubs were about leisure um they were about what you did on the few brief hours you had b- between sleep and, and and going back to work again or between work and sleep and there was a close relationship between uh working trades unions and the club movement but the club movement had this had this flirtation with radical politics uh, a lot of the radical clubs in london uh who had really dangerous subversive ideas such as allowing women to have the vote uh and things like that um they threatened to take over the the, the club movement at one point um but the club movement said, No, this is about what you do in your downtime, this is about your leisure time. So, a lot of these people may well have been involved in politics, they may well have uh, become councillors uh, and politicians and union representatives. A lot of them were, uh, but the club kind of marked out its spaces. We don't really talk about that kind of stuff in here, uh, you, you do that in the other place. Here, we just sit and we, we have a beer uh, and we relax and we play a game of dominoes or cards or snooker or, or whatever.
2: Hey, I'm Gerard. Um, we're going to wrap up soon, but I'd like to go back to that line about the beer glow versus the whiskey drunk. Um, what, what was it about Kerouac that, that made him go over the edge? Was it because he was from a working background? And, you know, what about his other beat writers? The contemporaries around him were, were also doing drugs and partying. And um, how come... Why did he go downhill so fast? You know, I think the
3: immediate thing that Kerouac realized once he got to Columbia, now Kerouac went to Columbia on a football scholarship, right? And he had worked his way out of this, you know, really industrial situation via his skills playing football. And he had, that's how he got to Columbia. The people that he was meeting when he was at Columbia were people that had trust funds, people that you know were exploring the arts in a way that most working class people can't do. And so at first, I think he was very excited by this idea and these sort of philosophical pursuits he was having, these incredible uh, Benzedrine-fueled conversations he was having with Allen Ginsberg and this plumbing of the mind. But there was always a division in that he was from a different place. And you know, he was from an immigrant family. He had learned how to speak English at six years old. Meanwhile, he's coming, he's meeting these people who have had this incredible um, privilege background. And they were, you know, these great families of great repute and the sort of folks that you sort of typically associate with academia. And I think at some point it, it fell apart. And, you know, I, I think you look at his relationship with Ginsburg, too. You know, he had Ginsburg was essentially at some point Kerouac's soulmate. And, they, you know, they were uh, in love to some extent. Depends on how much Jack really wants to admit it. By the end of his life, they weren't talking to one another. He was attacking Ginsburg all the time, and I think it was because he at some point thought, "I'm not part of this. You know, I'm the guy who drinks beer. I'm the Valentine guy. These people are—they're doing psychedelic drugs and they're plumbing the depths of consciousness. I really just want to relax and have a good time." And um, he he resented everything that came out of it. So I think Kerouac's class background was really the the dividing point and you know eventually you see it it had turned malignant and he became this virile racist and uh you know a a person who was just generally not pleasant to be around but um I think it comes out of that background you know it comes out of he got in where the drugs and the alcohol were helping him and then it metastasized and it made him into a very terrible person because he wasn't doing it for any Death or intellectual pursuit it was always that sort of alleviation of the worldly pressure it's not understanding deeper the human experience trying to run away from the human experience
2: well do so you think he would have been happier if he never was famous well i he
3: intellectually could not deal with the pressure you know he did i think you know his his tragedy is that he was simultaneously too famous for his own good and also not famous enough. He never received any recognition, never won any major awards um, until after his death. And he was, you know, very upset about that. Meanwhile, he was getting recognition and people, he felt that people were taking the wrong message from his writing as well. And that, you know, this is something that what Lowell celebrates Kerouac's point of contention is he didn't want people to take on this sort of like beat nick run down the road abandon your responsibilities lifestyle know, it's not what he ever wanted it's not what he wanted to be known for and it just kind of ran away from him and all of a sudden he found himself you know this was the time where television was really becoming an emerging medium and authors were famous for like the first time ever and he became the face of a generation he never asked for that he didn't want to be that he just wanted to write the stuff he had to fight for it. you know eight years to get on the road published um, because it was so out there and he was never accepted. And he was fighting against um, this world that didn't accept him. And then when people did accept him, it was in a way that he disagreed with. And so he you know, revolted against that. It was you know, that that sort of push and pull. He never really made it in the way that he wanted
2: to. You think if he had stayed in Lowell, he he might have been okay? Because, I, I, I again, going from a uh, working town to New York – alone uh, is is quite a journey. I mean, clearly
3: there was something there, right? And I think the, why do Americans in find Jack Kerouac to be such like in a cathartic read? And why do they they find that resonance with it? And I think it's because of so many people go that route, where they go from this, you know, sheltered, maybe singular context of you youth and adolescence and you go out into the larger world. That's what he represented to everyone. So I think it was, you know, ultimately very important. I can't say what would make him happy. I mean, I know his benediction for the working class, how much he loved the working class. He it really defined him. I don't know if he would have been happier, you know, doing that, working in a mill and getting laid off. And, you know, I think he was probably doomed to have a pretty miserable existence just by who he was, but at least he was able to turn that into a really positive, uh, literary contribution at the end of the day.
2: Well, Jory, I want to thank you and your, and your editors for uh, letting you write about Jack Kerouac and Good Beer Hunting. That was a really cool, uh, stimulating article. We got yeah, thank to meet so much. this whole crew. Um, PJ, anything else you want to say about Navigation Brewing and Lowell? What should I drink? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm coming off a shift, whether I was lawn mowing or working in the kitchen, which I've done many times. I want a good cold one. What should I get at Navigation Brewing?
6: Um, it's all going to depend on what week you get down here. If you get down here in the next couple, I would say definitely the Kolsch. Um, if not that, I would go straight to um, probably one of the uh, pale ales we've got going on right now. we got a couple of West Coast little ABV pale ales.
2: Great. And BR, if you didn't say it already, what's your working class beer?
5: Well, right now I'm drinking the uh, a transmitter. It's the BNY One uh, pre-Prohibition Pilsner that they actually brewed in honor of the the men and women working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard since uh, for for many many years. And you know, it's it's the beer that would have been for the most part drunk, um, you know, in the mid late 1800s 1800s, early 1900s before Prohibition. You know, thirst quenching, yet refreshing, not too heavy, but with a nice mouthfeel, some body to it. A little bit of crispness from the hops, and a little bit more body, body from the corn, from the maize.
2: And then back, back then, MBR, did they have stainless steel back then? Were they brewing in stainless steel or wood? Do you know?
5: It depends on how far back. I'm not sure when stainless was first introduced. I mean, in terms of, uh, um, yeah, I mean it, that would probably, I would imagine, be in the 1900s when that was on a used on a, on a larger basis. It would have been. Cast iron would have been copper, would have been wood. Um, but these are the—I the, mean—the pre-Prohibition loggers are the ones that the German immigrants were brewing. Um, you know, they had to use the the corn or the flake maize to lighten up the the American. The six-row barley was a little bit more difficult in terms of its protein. It was harder to make a, a more clear beer, um, and they found that the corn um, added to it sort of was able to lighten it up, at, but as well as. The, um, the proteins in the American barley at the time were able to ferment more sugars out of the corn. So it wasn't, most people think of corn as a cheap adjunct that the major brewers use now um, to cut costs, but it actually started out as something that was necessary to make a better beer with um, the ingredients that were grown in the US um, to, and to make something similar to what the Germans and the Czech brewers, the Bohemian brewers would be brewing, what they had you know back in, in Europe, trying to recreate something similar given the ingredients they had on hand here. Um, although often with imported hops.
2: Wow, that that's, I want to go get one of your transmitters right now. S oh, nine, that S nine stays on. Oh, it's so good. Love transmitters. Oh yeah, S nine. And Pete, what, what what's your working class beer?
4: It would have to be uh, porter, I guess. Uh, it was the you know the first industrial revolution beer, uh, the first beer to be brewed on industrial scale. Uh, allegedly invented about a mile away from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, and it was, you know, people talk about tricky beer today. When you look at the volumes of porter that were being brewed in London in uh, the early 19th century, we were swimming in this stuff, you know? <laughs> we, we really, really were. So uh, we we drink far, far less now than we were then. Uh, and it's interesting when people say, oh, we'll get a lot from, well, we hear a lot from kind of mainstream uh, multinational roses, but people don't like difficult tastes. They don't like complexity. They don't like flavour, and when you taste a decent porter and you think, when this was the main beer in the world, people were drinking f- way more per head than they are now of <laughs> of, of cheap industrial lagers. So maybe maybe uh, maybe there's maybe there is a kind of mass acceptance of interesting, flavorful beers.
2: Yeah, a friend of mine from a, he's from a mine town in Scotland, and he grew up in England, and he always tries to find a porter. In New York for lunch. Um, do, do you have a porter that you recommend, even if it's only o- over there?
4: Um, yeah, I mean, uh, quite a few. Uh, there's a brewery uh, started up just up the road from me, uh, Redemption. Uh, and this is a guy who used to work as a hedge fund manager. And he quits that job and opens a brewery and calls it Redemption. I mean, you figure out his motivation there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and his porter, the Redemption Porter, is just uh, I, I I don't want to get into I, I, I try not to get into the kind of the, the exactitudes of is this an authentic uh, 18th century recipe and that kind of thing because the ingredients are different. You know, you, you can't you you couldn't brew. Uh, an 18th century porter now because hops are different and barley is different and the water is different um but I like to imagine when I drink a pint of that that I'm drinking what people drank here in this house my house is 150 years old Uh, I like to imagine that when I'm drinking that it's what people were drinking in this house 150 years ago
2: all right and Gerard what's your work in beer I know you told us about a couple that you had. Yeah, I, I Castle Danger Cream Ale. That's the one I drink.
3: I love cream males. Actually, I, I work with a, a Scottish guy, and he had no idea what a cream ale was. So I love the fact that it is pretty quintessentially American, and uh, it comes from a little town up north in Minnesota. And I let me tell you, it hits the spot every
2: single time. Well, what, What's the name of the brewery again? Castle Danger. Castle Danger. Wow. Guys, it's been really great fun. Um, thanks so much for joining me. Um, I got PJ, BR, Pete and Gerard and uh, really, really special talk. Um, I love talking with Pete Brown any excuse for getting him on is always a pleasure. Looking forward to seeing your book club land coming out 2022 and Gerard Fagenberg, um, bro, I'm going to keep following you on good beer hunting and many other things. And thanks so much. And I'm going to get to Lowell, Massachusetts. Likewise.
1: navigation
2: brewing with PJ and BR looking forward to having a transmitter with you very soon. So guys, thanks so much. Thanks to Armin, our engineer for uh, pulling this together and we'll catch you next time on beer sessions radio. All right. Thank you guys. Beer sessions radio is powered by cinema. Thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content. Subscribe to our newsletter.